was terrifying. Yeah. I was so scared. I'd never been that scared in my life, but I'd also never been that excited in my life. Mm. Um, and those two emotions are, are very, very close. Um, I was committed. The, the helicopter dropped us off. We were on the mountain, the helicopter took off, and, and I, I had no option but to, but to, to drop move in forward, and yeah. to, move, to move forward. Yeah. What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the In-Situ Health and Fitness Podcast. On today's podcast, I have Jenny Milton, or Adrenagen, as you might know her on social media. A few months ago, Jenny came to me looking for some PT sessions. She had a few injuries and niggles in her body that she just needed fixing up. And they were sort of out of the ordinary injuries. So as we started training and getting, in, getting into our sessions, obviously we started talking. After hearing all her stories, I knew we had to sit down and record this podcast. There are so many good stories in this podcast. Everything from Jen selling up her house, selling the sports car, selling a successful business just to go and chase her dreams. The stories about her big mountain accomplishments even gave me goosebumps as she was talking through them. All within the same year, she became the Australian kite surfing champion. She came fourth in the world in the world uh, kite surfing competition. And then she took on the Red Bull Ragnarok. That is one to look up. A crazy snow kiting race that I'm just gonna leave it there. Jen goes right into it in this episode. If you enjoy this episode as much as I enjoyed making it for you guys, please head over to social media and share this on your stories. Tag myself, tag Jen, you'll find both of our handles in the show notes and it will let us know that you enjoyed this episode as well. All right, I'll stop talking so you guys can enjoy my chat with Jenny Milton. All right, Jen, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for coming in. Jack, thanks Thanks for having me. I'm super excited to chat with you today. I'm even more excited. I know we've had a few chats outside this podcast in the gym about a few of the things you've done. I'm pretty excited to get into those and dive a little bit deeper into those stories. But let's start, get everybody to know you a little bit better. If I was to walk up to you on the beach or in the pub and say, Jen, what do you do? What's your answer? Great question, Jack. <laughs> I would say, I would say definitely with a beer in my hand, I would say my name's Jenny Milton. I'm from Australia. Uh, my nickname is Adrenogen because I'm into adrenaline and extreme sports. Um, I'm a professional kite surfer, snow kiter, and big mountain backcountry guide. <laughs> I love that. That's, that's an epic, epic description for, like, to have for yourself. But before we dive into that, I just want to go back, way back. Let, let's sort of go back to where it all started. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Canberra, which is the capital of Australia, not far from where we are now on the coast. And um, my mum and dad had a ski shop from when I was born. So all I remember growing up is, is going skiing every winter. My dad was also into sailing. So I remember going, going sailing every summer. Whereabouts would you do the sailing? Well, we started off just sailing on Lake Burley Griffin in Canberra. Wow. Yeah, my dad, my dad had some, some little trailer sailors and yeah. my brother and I would, would sail and, and, um, on the lake and then mum and dad got windsurfers into the ski store. You know, uh, we'd only sell ski gear in the wintertime and then in summer different sports would come and go 
through the store as they became in and out of fashion. And so I remember being part of the, the windsurfing um, era and mum and dad would, would pick me up from school and they dumped me down at the lake and I would have a, a trailer full of windsurfers and it was my job to rent them out and let people come and demo them before they bought them. So oh. I, I learned to windsurf when I was, uh, yeah, when I was very young. Wow, that's that's great. Um, so what was the store called? for? Because we do have a few listeners from Canberra and this local area, so some of the older generation might know it. Yeah, well, back when back in the um, sort of 70s and 80s, it was called Slalom Ski and Skiwear. Sea yeah. and Skiwear, yeah. right? Rattle that off the tongue fast. <laughs> and, um, and then, you know, in my, my teenage years, they moved out to Fishwick to a bigger premises and it became Canberra Ski Centre. Mm. And and that was uh, one of the biggest ski stores in Australia. It was very popular for people driving down through Sydney to, to stop and rent gear. And um, they had they had an amazing store. That's unreal. Yeah. Um, so let's dive into the style a little bit. So ski and snowboard or just skied? Well, I started off skiing from as long as I can remember. I think about two or three. Um, my brother and I got into it and... Um, and then when I was about, I don't know, 17, 18 snowboards yeah. started becoming a thing. I already had some, some friends in Threadbow um, who were snowboarders and I remember them being sort of some of the first people um, to bring a snowboard into Australia and cruise around on it. Um, but then mum and dad decided they would sell snowboards in the store. Uh, but the skiers and the snowboarders didn't really get along very well. So we figured out quickly that it would be better to move the snowboards into a separate store. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. So okay. I was at that point um, already running Canberra Blade Centre. So we had Canberra Ski Centre in Fishwick and then Canberra, Canberra Blade Centre in the city. And we would rent and sell rollerblades. So uh, it, it kind of made sense for, for us to add snowboards in there with the rollerblades and change the name into Adrenaline Sports. <laughs> and that was where I first started getting my nickname Adrenagen. Nice. Yep. Isn't that crazy how much it's changed? Like you had to have two different stores, one for skiing, one for snowboarding, and now it's just all, pretty much all in one. That's, that's right. It was the same with skateboarders and rollerbladers. They really True. didn't like being in the same store either. And I, um, I owned a, a separate skateboard store at one stage until I managed to merge them all into one super cool adrenaline base uh, store. Oh, wow. Uh, <laughs> how, t how, how times changed. Yeah. All right. So um, from there, what's happened? So Yeah, so, so from there, um, I was... Uh, a retailer mm. in the ski industry, enjoyed running my adrenaline store in Canberra. Um, but I didn't want to just sell the products and talk about the products. I actually wanted to do the sports of the things that we were selling. And I remember one day being in, in adrenaline sports and we had uh, the big TV screen in there playing all the latest snowboard movies. They had a, a series called TB totally bored and there was TB one, two, three, four, they all went on and we were watching one one day and they always had this epic Alaska footage in them. And look, I've got goosebumps now just thinking about it because I, I remember watching that footage and saying in front of everybody, I'm going to do that one day. And I remember some of them going, oh yeah, right, Jen, sure, Jen, you know, because these were 
big mountains that were big, that were scary, and these guys were ripping insane lines that were deserving of being in the movies. Mm. But I wanted to give it a go. So, um, how old were you? I was. Good question. I haven't thought about how old I was at that point. Well, yes, I, for my 30th birthday, I oh. shouted myself a trip to go heli skiing in Alaska. Mm. So I was 30 years old. And that was your first time skiing or snowboarding overseas? No, I had been on a couple of snowboard trips. Um, you know, getting back to your question, I turned into a snowboarder yeah. <laughs> when we moved the snowboards into the store and I started selling them. And I, and I did get to travel overseas and, and snowboard. Um, um, Where was your first trip? Mammoth Mountain. Where's that? In, um, in Colorado. Okay. No, it's not. California. Yep. Yep, California. Wow. And um, and that was amazing. I remember riding powder for the first time and knowing I should have had a bigger board because it was so deep. It was it was amazing. Um, I definitely got a feeling for riding power and wanted more of it. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it's very addictive, especially for like the rest of the world wouldn't understand. But coming from Australia and going overseas, especially to the northern hemisphere. It's, yes. it's something different. Yes, spot on there. Yeah. yeah, I already felt like I was in the movies just riding powder because it wasn't like what we got to ride here in Australia. Mm. Although I'm so grateful to my parents for, um, you know, allowing me to grow up skiing from such a young age because, um, you know, that really instilled a passion in me that's still going today. Yeah, let's um, dive into that a little bit. So you said you're on skis from the age of two, or th two and three. Yeah. So was it you'd go up there on the weekends with mum and dad and they would teach you or was it a snow school thing? Uh, I remember having lessons when I was a little kid. You know, they used to have Mickey Mouse and you'd ski between his legs. <laughs> and, you know, that's probably one of my earliest memories, learning how to, you know, bend my knees and go through a little hole and then stand up tall and go over a little gnome or something. And it was, it was good fun. So um, definitely my parents put us into ski school. And we got some lessons. My brother ended up in the racing scene, so he continued into advanced race coaching, whereas I sort of dived more into the, the freestyle skiing. Um, I did some figure skating in Canberra as well. That was one of my favorite sports was to ice skate. And so um, I used to do ski ballet, which was part of freestyle skiing. I'm showing my age now because ski ba ballet hasn't been around for a long time. But um, it was very similar to, to figure skating and we'd use these short little skis and we'd do pole flips and spins and axles and land backwards and ski with our feet pointing in different directions and um, uh, all to music on, on the slope. So it was wow. very, uh, very creative, um, very physical. Um, and challenging and I really enjoyed doing the freestyle side of things um, but at the age of 14 um, my parents decided in my school holidays that I should do the ski hiring clinic which is the clinic you do to learn how to be a ski instructor Okay. Um, now they actually lied about my age because he's supposed to be over 18 and I was only 14 but they got me in there and <laughs> I just loved it it was great for my own skiing. I learned how to teach, started to learn how to communicate better. And um, it, was, it was amazing. Mm. Yeah, that was an amazing sort of opportunity that I had at a very, very young age. And at the end of the hiring clinic, you know, everybody's done their exams and everybody's nervous and they're wondering who's gonna get offered a job. And sure enough, they offered me a job and I had to confess that- Who's they? 
uh, Threadbow. Oh, wow. Yeah, so I got offered a job at Threadbow as a ski instructor. At 14. At 14. And uh, I had to confess of, of my age and, um, and that I had to go back to school soon. But they did allow me to, to do some training instructing at the, that age. And for the next few years, all my ski, ski school, all my school holidays turned into ski school yeah. <laughs> holidays. And, and so I, I started working on the mountains at a very young age. Wow, that's a, that's a great opportunity. Yeah. Um, a lot of people, like, even for myself, snowboarding, like I'd, I'd say I'm okay, but when I go with new people, it's very hard to coach and teach and all that sort of stuff. And it's the same within the gym. It takes a long time to learn how to develop the skills to communicate what people need to do properly and actually get them to do it. And to learn that at 14, that would have been amazing. It, it was an amazing skill to learn and it wasn't just about communicating one way, it was uh, figuring out multiple ways of communicating the same thing. Everybody and hopefully one person yep. will, will, will take that in. And also through, through demonstration, having really good form in your skiing, um, it was wonderful for my skiing to get back to basics and to, to get uh, all of my demonstrating skills, you know, even simple things like snow plowing and stem Christie's um, became very, very strong. And I think that has also helped me in, you know, the big mountain skier that I've become today, mm. having a background of, of that, that's those skills. Rather, my brother had all of the racing skills. Yeah. Um, I had more of the freestyle and the ski instructor sort of base. That's awesome. Um, all right. So... How long were you doing that? Like, how long was the instructing sort of phase for? Well, the instructing phase was probably, I don't know, four or five years maybe. Um, and this is as well as working in the shop and running? Well, this is at a younger age. This was sort of while I was still a teenager at school. So, so you were still helping mum and dad in yeah, the shop and I was that sort of stuff? helping them in the shop. Winter would come and you're up. Yep. Yeah, Weekends okay. we'd have trips and then school holidays I'd be, I'd be working at the ski school in Threadbow. Yep. Um, and then over the years, you know, once I sort of went to university in Canberra, um, I decided that I didn't like spending all my time on the beginner slopes and, uh, and I really wanted to get out there in the backcountry um, and get away from the crowds, mm. away from all of the other people's tracks. And I wanted to, to leave some fresh tracks on some fresh snow that no one else had been on. And uh, I really found that joy. In Australia? In Australia, yep. getting outside of, of Threadbow. Mm. Um, most of us Aussies, we stay inside of resorts, but once you go out into the backcountry, it's a whole nother world opens up and it's, it's amazing yeah. the terrain that's out there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I've done, I did a little bit when I was in Canada, but I've never done it in Australia. It's just, like you said, it just doesn't seem to be a thing over here. I don't know. It could just be the circles I walk in, but obviously meeting you, I, I understand that people actually do do it in Australia. Um, how different is it? It, I think it's a wonderful training ground. Once I started watching all of those Alaskan movies and starting to have the, the dream of, of skiing some of these big mountains, I knew that I needed to train. Yeah, okay. So in order to train, I needed to start, you know, going out there into the backcountry with a backpack on, skiing with a backpack full time, mm. which changes your balance, yeah. changes everything. Um, and I needed to start practicing using shovels and probes. And, and uh, you know, I couldn't practice using a beacon because a lot of the time I was going solo. Mm -hmm. um, I had to get really good at using my skins 
because some of these mountains you can't, um, you know, always get a helicopter to the top of. You, you want to be able to, to actually, you know, climb up the mountain yourself. So you use something called skins for those people that have never heard of skins. They're um, kind of like sticky carpet that goes on the bottoms of your skis or your snowboard, right? They've got split boards these days, so you can do both. And the fibers um, uh, go in one direction. So they allow you to slide forwards but then the fibers engage, so they don't allow you to slide backwards. Therefore, we can we can ski uphill. Skins are made normally out of like mohair and nylon, mm -hmm. um, and they they fold up small to keep in your backpack, so you can put them on when you want to go uphill. Take them off at the top, and then you're ready to go down again. So this is obviously around late teens time. You're hiking up into the backcountry by yourself. Yeah, this is probably early 20s by, by now that yeah. I'm starting to, to get into this. I'm already, you know, in, in uh, uh, adrenaline sports. I'm already selling some, uh, probably before I started snowboarding or, and after, actually. Yeah. It's all starting to, to, mesh, into, yeah. <laughs> in, mesh into one. But um, um, I realized that if I wanted to go backcountry, that snowboarding um, wasn't the best tool mm -hmm. at that time. Um, split boards were just starting to get on the scene, but they really weren't developed well. And um, um, I wasn't that interested in, in snowshoeing at that point. So I knew that um, up in Alaska, we needed to we needed to learn those skills. So I started doing it doing it here in Australia on baby slopes. Uh, I remember uh, working at a, a ski shop in Jindabyne. Um, in retail for a while there in my 20s, somewhere in that, that age group. And um, uh, I had to work from 10 a.m. until, you know, 6 p.m. And so my only chance to ski was before 10 a.m. So I would camp in the car park at Threadbow and I'd get up at 5 a.m. I'd put my skins on and I would skin up the resort before it opened. And my goal was always to get to the top of Crackenback before the patrollers got there and to be skiing down, getting first tracks while the patrollers were still on the on the chair. And uh, many of those guys are my friends and, and remember those days when I was learning how to skin and, and that was my chance to to get as many, um, you know, as much vertical as I could. Yeah, and I'd assume back then you were probably probably one of the only people doing it. There were a few. There were a few sort of um, local crew that was yeah. getting out there. I would go out there by myself and you'd spot somebody and they'd go, well, somebody else is out here. <laughs> and we'd meet up and, and say hi. And, um, you know, some of those guys are still my, my good friends today. Um, there's always been a sort of a core crew of people going out in the back country, especially the cross country skiers mm. that grew up with their parents doing it. They've been spending a lot of time out there in the back country, but they were on cross country gear, um, which wouldn't allow you to, to climb up steep mountains and ski back down. So yeah. Alpine touring, um, when it's, it you know became a thing, was definitely um, the option that I was excited about um, because I could go up mountains and ski down. I was an alpine skier. I was was never into into cross country. Cool. Um, so, I guess going from there, you've done a couple of overseas trips. You did your first Alaskan trip in your thirty when you were thirty for your thirtieth. Yep. Tell us about that. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. That trip changed my life in more ways than one. Um, I'd I'd gone over to um, 
to Vegas for the SIA trade show, Ski Industries Association, America's trade show. And, and that was incredible because you got to um, you got to see all of the major brands having these, you know, what seemed to me like million dollar stands with beautiful displays and showing all of next year's products. And that was exciting. Did you go as a spectator or a vendor? I went as a, an Australian retailer yep. that was going over to, to do research. It was a business trip for me to, to, to look at new products, to place orders for my store, um, to possibly look at products to import into Australia to distribute myself. Um, there were many reasons why I was at, at, the, at the show, mm -hmm. um, just to be part of the industry and just see, see the mecca of the American um, ski industry trade show was, was amazing. And then after that, um, a group of Aussie ski industry people were then going up, up to Alaska and I managed to, to score a, the oh, last so seat. It wasn't planned. Um, it was planned. It was planned at the Keller Bar and Thread Bow a couple of months, okay. you know, yep, earl yep. earlier that oh, when we all went to the trade show, mm -hmm. we would we would go. I remember being in the bar and hearing these guys talking about, oh, yeah, we're going heli skiing in Alaska and they're all planning. And I'm like, but that's what I want to do. Like, how do I go with you? You know, all of a sudden I thought it was an opportunity for me to jump in because I didn't know who else to do it with, right? Jump in with a group and they, they said to me, oh, Jen, it's a boy's trip, no girls allowed, right? <laughs> Our wives would kill us. I'm like, hey, that's not fair. Look, I've got the money. You guys have said you've got one spare seat. Please, 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 please let me, please let me come. I won't tell your wives. <laughs> okay. And, um, and I did jump in, you know, I think it worked out financially for them. Um, but I was also not only the only girl, but the only snowboarder in the group they're all skiers wow yeah so um so i didn't know this but that when we all got there and you know we we're all signing up and filling out our paperwork and they're trying to decide you know who goes in what group because you're trying to get people the same standard in the in the helicopter so that you know you're, you all have your dream come true rather than being stuck with somebody that may not have the skills and i didn't know this but they'd gone oh you know jenny's a snowboarder yes yeah, she's with us but you know, <laughs> maybe um, they didn't really want to ride with, with me being a, on a snowboard and those guys being excellent skiers, yeah. right? And, and, I, yeah. and I, I, get, I totally get that. Um, what they didn't know was by farming me off, I ended up in the lead group with Jerry Hance, the lead guide. So every day when, uh, you know, everybody gets ready and the first group comes up to get in the helicopter, that was me. I got to get in the heli first every day and go out with, with Jerry and we got to bounce around these, these mountain peaks and, and we're normally the first helicopter to land on top. All right, let's back up a little bit. <laughs> I'm getting excited. <laughs> no, no, understandable. Um, so where are you in Alaska doing this? I'm out of Valdez, Alaska. Okay. Um, and what year is this? This is going to be... 2001. Okay. Wow. Awesome. What was it like? Had, had you been in a helicopter before then? No. So this is your first time in a helicopter uh -huh. going up to the top of a hill to drop in on a snowboard. Uh, yeah, Jack, it's not a hill. It was a big just, mountain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah it was, it, there were a lot of firsts. It, it, um, it was my first time to Alaska. Um, since, you know, I'd made that commitment in front of my crew at Adrenaline Sports that that's what I was going to go and do. Um, it was the first time I'd ever been in a helicopter. 
Um, and it was the first time I'd ever snowboarded on anything even close to that big, bigger mountain. Oh, so you can imagine the, the emotions oh, were My heart is running. racing, you just told me that. I've, I've, not, I've been to a couple of big mountains in Canada and I was shit myself just walking up to the top of those. Yeah. I could not actually imagine getting dropped off in a helicopter. What is it like stepping out of the helicopter onto this mountain? Well, be careful what you wish for because it might just happen, right? <laughs> um, it was it was terrifying. Yeah. I was so scared. I'd never been that scared in my life, but I'd also never been that excited in my life. Mm. Um, and those two emotions are very, very close. Um, I was committed. The, the helicopter dropped us off. We were on the mountain. The helicopter took off, and and I would I had no option but to but to, to drop in forward, and yeah. to move to move forward. How do you? How, I know it's a while back now and you'd probably just do it just for fun now and you don't even get those nerves, but if you can, just try and remember how you actually put those two together just to keep moving forward because a lot of people, and I actually experience this myself, like you get to the point where you've got to drop in and you freeze and you can't, like, you want to go, you want to go backwards, you want the helicopter to come back, but how do you actually put it together and just keep moving? Um, there, there was a formula, you know, like uh, Jerry, Jerry was an incredible guide. He was very, um, and he was going caring. down the mountain with you. Um, no, he went first. Oh, I mean like, but he was in the group. Yeah. So he's in the group. He gives us, he makes sure we all had our gear on and that we were ready. And then he says, okay, I'm going to drop in first and I'm going to go down to the first section, call back on the radio. And then, you know, then it's then it's your turn, right? I, I can't remember what, what number I was in the group, but the helicopters always have, you know, normally four clients mm -hmm. and the guides. So I was somewhere, somewhere in those four, I wasn't focused on them. I was very focused on what I had to do. Um, and I, I remember it, it was my turn and you've got somebody behind you. I definitely wasn't last, you know, I've got somebody behind me and I don't want to hold them up. I've got, um, you know, people waiting for me down there, Jerry on the radio saying, you've got this, Jen. He was incredibly, um, you know, trying to build my confidence. Um, uh, little did I know he'd taken us to a run. That is the type of run you take people when they haven't, you know, ridden big mountains like this before. Oh, They're not just going to dump you on the top of some gnarly one like in the movies. Yeah. And so it was very doable once I sort of went, now or never, Jen. I think it was like, just, just, just do it. So did he count you in or you just like, it was you who took the leap? Yeah, I actually think he might've counted me in. Thanks for the reminder of that. Yeah. He might've counted me in just to get me to, 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 to go. Um, I remember dropping in and doing maybe two turns and going straight over the handlebars. Oh. Oh, no. As an Aussie, we don't. I didn't know to sort of get my weight back that far, and maybe my board was too short. Um, um, and I went straight over the handlebars, and so for a second, I went from fear to whoo to holy shit. And I remember tumbling maybe twice, and I landed back on my feet on my snowboard and kept going. <laughs> It was like going from zero to hero in 2.5 seconds. I was like, oh my God, I, I'm, I got my balance, I'm back. You know, um, it's great that, you know, my skis might have flown off, but my board is strapped to my feet. I ended up just 
getting lucky and landing back on my feet, realizing I needed to lean back, getting down to that first point and there was Jerry. And I got there and seriously burst into tears. Oh, yeah, I was gonna ask. Burst like? into tears. Yeah. There, was, there was so much emotion there mm. um, in so many respects yeah. in that short amount of time. Mm. Uh, yeah, brings back the tears now just to think, think about that. But um, it was a dream come true. Yep. It was the scariest moment of my life. It was my bravest moment of my life to find that courage. And um, yeah, I did it. Yeah, that, uh, I've got goosebumps, just imagine it. Um, so do you do multiple in the one day? Yeah. So the same <laughs> run or do you go to a different one? Well, um, sometimes you might go to the same run if, um, you know, the avalanche danger might be high or the, the snow conditions aren't great on all aspects. You might do it one run over again. Um, but this day, no, we, we bumped onto a, a different run every, every time so that so we let's had go to the fresh tracks. <laughs> so let's go to the second one. How was it? The second one, the second one, you know, was still so scary yeah. at the top and and you you mentioned just before maybe it's easy for me these days no, no. it's always scary at the top and that's part of the fun mm. if it wasn't scary for you and you felt no fear there'd be something wrong and that could actually be dangerous because to have that fear keeps you on your toes keeps you focused keeps you balanced and um um yeah i i actually enjoy that part of it um, and yeah, I don't think I'll ever be as scared as that first run, um, but the second one was still really effing scary. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, I can't even imagine it. Like, I, again, I've seen some of these movies as well and watching them just drop in on these mountains in Alaska on, the, on a TV, I'm getting goosebumps and getting like butterflies in my belly just watching it on TV. So to actually do it is actually, it's amazing. So. Yeah. You've done your first trip. How long did that last? Uh, that trip was for a week mm -hmm. and we got some epic, you know, power when we first got there and then they sort of had a storm come through um, and then people sort of sat around and played games and I started seeing um, other, you know, locals and some of the guides starting to do some you know, what they call down day activities. Yep. Uh, you know, if the helicopter's down, then they call it a down day activity. Um, Which were? Um, there were people ice climbing. There were people starting, you know, just doing some backcountry skiing in the trees. There were people riding snow machines around. Um, a snow machine is, is a skidoo yep. or snowmobile, they call them everywhere else except in Alaska, they're called a snow machine. It sounds tougher, don't you think? Yeah. And, um, and, um, that trip, was it that trip? No, it wasn't until my next trip um, that I discovered that they actually flew kites when it was stormy and windy as, as well up there. Um, but after the storm came through, conditions got tricky. It wasn't powder anymore. It was firm, hard pack, sastrugi. Sastrugi is um, like wind affected snow. The wind comes along and gouges out sections of snow. Um, essentially kind of like white caps on the water, but frozen. And okay. so, and so um, the stronger the wind yep. on the water, the bigger the white caps. Yeah. Well, the stronger the wind on the snow, the bigger the sastrugi. 
And so the condition- And they are hard or you can go through them? Uh, depends. Oh, wow, They can okay. start off quite soft if it's like the first day of yep. the storm and it's gouging it away, the powder away and it can still be soft and you can plow through them. But over time, especially if you get the sun on it and mm. get a bit of melt freeze and yeah, they can become quite tricky and treacherous. Yeah. And um, um, yeah, not everybody's cup of tea. So um, I remembered that the Aussie crew that I was with, um, they were all there, they were all about powder. This wasn't their first heli skiing trip and that they just wanted the, the prime. But for me, um, I just wanted every second in, in Alaska to last as long as I could. So they actually left a few days early and I ended up um, being in Valdez, Alaska by myself for three or four days and befriending the guides, the locals. Um, it was actually one of the best things that happened because I was able to get out of my shell, meet some new people um, and, and really meet the people that were doing the sport rather than just me back in Australia talking about it and selling the products for yeah. the sport. I was, I was, I was meeting the other side. And um, I met I met these incredible mountain guides that had so many skills about avalanches and big mountains, and that was just fascinating to me. I met um, girls that were so badass. Oh my God, these girls rode snow machines, and they had their own cabins, and they had they had to chop their own firewood to have heat, and they had no water, running water in the winter time, and they had to drive to town to have showers, and and there were people living in RVs in the parking lot because. They just wanted to ski, right? And so I started figuring out that there was more, more than one way to live your life. Um, it didn't have to be you had a job, nine to five, you buy a house, a cow, car, you have kids, all of that kind of stuff. I saw these people living lifestyles that I'd never even dreamed about or heard about. So it really opened my eyes on the possibilities of, of what we can, we can do with our lives. Wow. All right, before we move on, is there any advice you would give yourself going into that trip and about that trip? Or it sounds like you lived every single second to the most that you could, so there might not be advice, but what could you take from that trip and give advice to other people maybe looking to do something similar and venture out to do something outside their comfort zone? I think the... The advice that I would have is for somebody who's who's wanting to go up to Alaska, and believe me, uh, a lot of people want to go um, heli skiing or, or skiing in Alaska. Um, and a lot of the time, we don't feel ready. Maybe I wasn't ready. I I didn't know how to ride pow. I didn't have that many skills, but I did it anyway. We don't always need to be ready to do something. Just do it, and you'll learn along the way. And you'll learn through your first trip you know, what you could improve on. And then if you do it a second time, it's going to be so much uh, easier, more organized, and you'll be, you'll be ready. Yeah, I love that. That's great advice. Um, all right, so you've come back from the first trip back to Australia? Yep. What's changed? My mindset. Yep. My mindset changed. Um, my outlook on life changed. My desires and my dreams changed. My goals changed. So that's a lot. Yeah. So, paint the picture. You've obviously you've still got the two stores, or you've combined them into one. I had combined them into one mega store by this stage, Adrenaline yep. Sports, and um, I had about eight 
to 10 staff members working in this store. Um, I was a single girl, um, so I didn't have a relationship at that stage. And I came back to reality, I call it, mm. and I wasn't very happy. You know, maybe after having such a, a huge high in Alaska, um, coming back to, to my, you know, life, which seemed very mundane um, in comparison, um, wasn't what I wanted to be doing. And it made me realize that I was following in my parents' footsteps. They'd had a ski store and that's how they lived their life. And, and um, you know, then they bought the house and the sports car and I was, you know, starting to, to line up all those things myself. And maybe that wasn't the life I should be living, that I just didn't have to, to follow the same path as, you know, my parents who had, you know, showed me an incredible path for mm. that. I'm so grateful, you know, that my, my, the pathway that I had as a child was, was amazing. Um, but was that the pathway for me in life? Maybe not. And so I became very unhappy, I, I, you know, I was depressed. Um, I really didn't know what to do, except go back to where I was last happy, okay. which was Alaska. So I made some really big decisions um, over the next two years. I sold my house, I sold my sports car, and I sold the business. Wow. And then I, I worked for another uh, six months or so in the business with the new owners to get them all settled in. And I packed my bags, I packed everything that I wanted to take with me to Alaska in, in boxes. Um, it wouldn't all fit in one car. I remember my best friend Paul and my brother Michael having to drive two cars to the airport in order to fit in all the stuff. You know, uh, weight restrictions weren't as crazy as they are today. So I was able to take my snowboard, my rollerblades, my mountain bike, my, what? right? I even took kites with me, right? I didn't even know how to kite surf yet, but I knew I wanted to. And the plan was that I was gonna go and live in Alaska for 12 months. I was gonna, I was gonna fly over to Seattle and get my mountain bike out of the box, ride it up and down the highway to all the RV dealerships, buy an RV, right? I had a budget to buy an RV and, um, spend a little bit more on it than I probably should have just to make sure it was roadworthy because I had a lot of driving to do and I wanted to be safe, single girl. And, um, and, and I, I did it. I bought that RV and I spent 12 months driving it around Alaska. And on the way home, I, I uh, flew through Hawaii and had, had kiteboarding lessons. <laughs> All right, let, let's rewind again. <laughs> let's rewind. So selling your business, that was... <laughs> Because you've created that through your 20s and then into your 30s, you've had this one trip and then it's all of a sudden, it's not what I want. Was it hard to get rid of that? Because like, for me, getting rid of a car and a house would be easy, but you've created this store. The store would probably be your identity. Like people started calling you. Adrenogen, yeah. From the store. Adrenaline it was your sports, identity. adrenogen, yeah. So was it hard sort of transitioning from that? Um. Or was it sort of you made the decision and a weight was lifted and it felt like you'd go and chase this new dream? I had to change something. I was really unhappy and I couldn't find a formula out of that. Um, I wasn't enjoying, you know, um, all of the paperwork and the ordering of the business. It was a big job. Mm. Um, I didn't have a relationship going. Um, I wasn't a very happy girl. And I, all I knew was that I, I wanted to find that place of happiness and where I was at that particular moment in time with the business and the house, 
I was not in that happy place. Um, and so I decided I, I wanted to find that happy place. A lot of uh, kids straight out of school take 12 months off, off and they travel. So I thought to myself, well, why not take 12 months off and travel? I, I allowed myself to do that, um, which was a big decision in itself. Um, you know, again, I became brave after dropping into that mountain in Alaska and it took a lot of bravery to commit to selling the business, to, to changing everything. Mm. Um, and I think learning to overcome that fear in Alaska on those big mountains allowed me to then make some really big decisions that were scary in life. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's unreal. <laughs> uh, all right, let's, let's, so you'd spent 12 months in Alaska traveling around. So that would have been a summer and a winter. My goal was to do a full 12 months in Alaska, but back then um, I had a like a six month multiple entry visa as an Australian. And so uh, Alaska is part of the United States and I wasn't allowed to spend a full 12 months there. But so what I did was I, um, I drove up to Alaska and then I drove back into Canada and worked in, in Whistler for a little while, yep. earned a little bit of money there, and then decided to drive back up to Alaska which renewed my visa for another six months so that I could be there in time for the heli skiing <laughs> season. Um, so, yeah, okay. So I've been in Canada. I, is it difficult sort of getting from Canada to Alaska? Like, is it just a drive? Or like... It's a big drive. Yeah. It's a really big drive. I'd already, done it, I'd already done it once from Seattle all the way up through Canada, all the way up to Alaska and, and driven, you know, some of the, the roads up in Alaska up there yeah. um, and then uh, my visa was running out so I had to leave and I, I drove um, I drove back to Canada so I got a little bit of summertime mm. um, in, in Alaska and I got to, to you know tick a lot of things off my bucket list um, one of them was to see a polar bear in the wild and, and that was that was an incredible moment um, and I got to you know um, find roads with no names, mountains with no names, you know, um, drive nearly every road that I could. Um, then I drove back down to, to Canada, um, got a bit of snowboarding in at the resort there. And then once I'd been across the border for long enough, I drove back to Alaska. Um, and it's a, it's a, you know, it's a full on five day drive. Yeah, that's, that's what I was with, like with potholes and yeah. you've got to budget your fuel and um, but there's a hot springs Liard hot springs along the way and um, I had my favorite music playing and you know um, every day I would I would start my day in the RV with um, with Elton John playing and uh, I would hit the road and I, it was very enjoyable and you got to spend the winter doing heli skiing yeah, well, so I drove my RV back into the parking lot at the heli ski operation. It was called Alaska Backcountry Adventures back then. Yep. Um, so now I'd turned into one of these sort of, you know, ski bums with the RV that's going to park in the parking lot. And <laughs> yeah. I had a I had a budget of how much, you know, I could afford to spend on helicopters. So I couldn't afford to go every day. I knew I was going to be there for a few months. Just to give us an idea of how much it would cost to go up for a heli ski for the day back then yeah $85 for one run 
What? Uh-huh. Back then they had this incredible system. I'm I'm so lucky that I got to experience this because it it's it's <laughs> you know, it's folklore in Valdez that we used to buy these tokens. So you'd go up to the the office and I would buy say 10 tokens and that would mean I'd have 10 helicopter runs. Right? And you could either, you know, go up and and do six in a day. And at the end of each run, you would give your token to the guide. So the guide's pockets would be filling up with tokens all day. And, um, and what I would do was I discovered that the, the people that went out for the whole day, you know, had a lot of, had good money, would be finished by about, you know, four or five o'clock. And then the helicopter was sitting there and anybody who wanted to go up and do one sunset run, they would drop you across on a mountain across the street and they you wouldn't need to be picked up um, by the helicopter in the mountains you were able to ride all the way back to the road so it was just one bump for 85 dollars and it was at sunset and you'd make your own way back they'd pick you up in a car on the road that's unbelievable which was incredible and how long just sorry how long was that run like how long would it take from top to bottom well let's just in in vertical feet um, you're looking at about, you know, anywhere three to four thousand vertical Jesus. feet. Yeah. Um, and you can milk your turns and go as slow and take as long as you want to get down. Or some people like the straight line. Yeah. So, you know, it's hard to put a time on yeah, how, 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 how long it's going to take you to get from top to bottom. But the, the cool thing was that all of the heli skiers who had been out for the day were all celebrating, drinking beers in the car park and watching the people doing the sunset runs, mm. riding down the mountains in that pink light. And um, I have some incredible memories of watching some absolute legends um, doing sunset runs in Thompson Pass. Wow. Yeah. Oh, gives me goosebumps. Uh, and how long were you doing that for? So I got um, that whole season in um, and my plan... My Just... So, sorry, what's a season? Uh, the heli season is normally March and April. Okay. These days it's extended into February and into May a little bit, so it's, the season has gotten longer. There's, the reason why the season is so specific is because up in Alaska the days are very short in the wintertime. It's mm. dark. Mm. They get a lot of storms, and those storms can last weeks and they don't actually get a sunny day um, and we need sunny skies to go heli skiing so they worked out that you know normally by um, you know March and definitely in April you'd, the storms were more dispersed and you would get more bluebird days to, to go heli skiing so it was normally about an eight-week window and now it's extended. Is that because of the weather or just the need to extend it for um, I people? It's the weather. Okay. You know, the climate yeah. is definitely changing. Yep. Um, and it's obvious in Alaska by things like those, how many storms you're getting through, by watching the glaciers receding. Mm. Um, it's very, very obvious of, of climate change up there. All right. So just before we move on, was there any point where you felt like you regretted your decision to take the 12 months, like sell everything and take the 12 months? No. No, that's... Yeah. A definite no. Yeah, wow, that's there, awesome. There were some scary moments. There was some, um, a lot of self-reflecting and finding myself. Um, there was a lot of figuring out who I was, enjoying my own company. Mm. I spent a lot of time by myself, um, you know, driving backwards and forwards, um, making decisions of where I wanted to go. Every decision that I made, was my decision um, and and that I think was a, a really good time of growth for me 
to figure out, you know, what I wanted to do with my life and, and where it would lead me to. Wow. And it was it was my life. I was creating my life. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So did you do any kiting in Alaska? Yeah. So in that 12 months when I ended up back at the, the helicopter base living there, um, I got to know all the guides. It was a super cute one called Steve, um, who had when uh, welcomed me when I walked into the, the heliops. It had been, you know, two years since I'd been there for that first trip. It took me two years to get back, so I missed one season. I walked in and he's like, Jenny, welcome back. I'm like, wow, he even remembered my name? What? And, um, and I got to meet Jerry again and, and all these guides. But um, Steve uh, was a windsurfer, and so we had something in common and I told him that you know I had these kites and I was going to Maui to go kite surfing and um, you know his story is I was sort of you know building myself up to be this kite surfer whereas actually I'd never even done it before right <laughs> <laughs> which is probably typical because I was you know flirting with him and all that kind of stuff so um, Steve ended up having a couple of trainer kites with him um, which is perfect for learning on and um, and so we decided we would go kiting together out on the airstrip on the next down day. So we had a stormy day and it was windy and the helicopter couldn't fly. And so we went out there and Steve put up this trainer kite and was zipping backwards and forwards on his snowboard. And I decided I'd put up this big oh inflatable no. <laughs> kite that was designed for kiteboarding, which I didn't know how to use. And uh, back then they were super dangerous. They didn't have D-power. They were, you know... People were killing themselves with those things because they were just so powerful. Well, I didn't kill myself. I'm still alive to tell the tale. But I put up this kite and was unable to control it and, um, and ended up, you know, crashing it and then trying to figure out how to stop. How do I recover this kite? Every time I walk towards it, it blew further away from me. So, you know, something as basic as I just want to stop was what I needed. Now, Steve, uh, you know, just thought I was playing with my kite. He didn't actually know I was in trouble. And so he, he packed up his kite after a session and went in. And, and I remember being out there on my own and having to, to make a big decision again. Um, I, I, I couldn't figure out how to get my kite down. Uh, I don't think I had a leash on it, that, you know, in those days, you know, I couldn't control it. Um, so I, I decided that my only option was to, to, to run it into something, to stop it. And I had two options that was downwind of me. Now, I know better these days, you shouldn't be kiting with things downwind of you, especially big trees and the helicopter, right, which was also downwind of me. And I decided tree, helicopter, tree, heli I better go for the tree, right? <laughs> so I ended up sort of negotiating this kite into the base of the tree. It got stuck in the tree. Then I was able to go and, and, and get that kite down. And uh, So that was your first kiting experience? That was my first kiting experience, yes, yep. yes. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> nothing, nothing very exciting. But, all, right. Uh, all right. So from there, you you've done it a couple of times in Alaska. You said you went to Hawaii. Yeah. Well, I mean, the next time we went out, I decided to use one of the training kites that Steve yeah, had had good, so good much success with, and we both started using those those trainer kites. And I I started to get it. I was getting my first rides, um, and I I saw the possibilities, and I saw. Yeah, this dream of not even realizing that I could use kites on snow, 
you know, I already had the vision of me learning to kiteboard on water. But all of a sudden I started falling in love with this vision of, of snow kiting. And, you know, I fell in love with the sport and I fell in love with Steve, who's now my husband of 12 years. So that was the start of our love story too. Nice. Um, so from there, what happened? Um, from there, that was the end of my, my 12 months. My visa was running out um, and my, I was stuck with my plan of packing up, you know, my stuff and, uh, and heading to Hawaii for some kite lessons. Yep. But I did make one change. I didn't sell the RV. Okay. My original plan was to sell the RV. Um, I couldn't do it. I loved my RV life. I wanted to do this again. I loved being in Alaska at that time of year. Um, so rather than selling it, I decided I'd put it into storage instead. In Alaska? In Anchorage, Alaska, yep. And so I, I left sort of, you know, some of my Alaskan gear in the RV and I put it into storage for um, 10 months until I got back for another year. Yeah. So you come back to Australia in that time? Um, in that time, I did come back to Australia. Um, I'd already sold my business, um, but I came back and um, went back to the ski industry, which has always been so so good to me. So In Threadbow? Yeah, I went back to Threadbow and I got a job with Randy Wyman at Hot Shots Photography. Um, I came back, he's like, show me some of your photos, Jen, I'll see if you're any good. And I popped out all these photos from Alaska, he goes, wow, you're pretty good. <laughs> you can have a job. It's hard to take a bad photo in Alaska because yeah, it's so beautiful. Yeah. Um, but I am so grateful that I worked for Randy Wyman, who was an Olympic athlete, photographer, you know, one of the best freestyle skiers of all time in my books. And, um, and that was back when we were still using film cameras. So he, um, he taught me everything he could about photography and I used to shoot the ski school races and I used to stand around at the top of the lifts and take portraits of people and, and then at the end of the day we'd go back down and, and we'd develop the uh, um, you know these print sheets to put on the wall and people would come in and they would they would buy the photos and we would make a commission on mm -hmm. on uh, you know how many of our photos were yeah. sold. Uh, what was it like coming back to Australia? Um, Did you know it was just going to be momentary like you're just here for a little bit, then you knew you were going back. Yeah, I had a plan. Yeah. You know, I left my RV in Alaska. I had to go back to rescue it, right? Yeah. Um, so, so I'd I'd made a plan that I was going to come back, um, reapply for my visas, and work for you know six eight months or so, and then fly back to the states um, earlier than I had. But I would fly back to Montana, which was where Steve lived. So I'd never been to Montana before, but I'd fallen in love with this this guy and that's where he was from. So he invited me to come and stay with him in um, Bridge Bowl, Montana, which is just out of Bozeman. And he lived at the base of a ski resort. So we were going to, you know, do some or snowboarding. I was still snowboarding then, um, and then we were then we would head up up to Alaska after that. Cool, and that's that's what happened. That's what happened. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Although uh, Steve picked me up from the airport in Salt Lake City. I'd flown into Salt Lake, and so it was a I don't know probably a six or seven hour drive up to Bozeman, and it dumped snow. There was powder, so he said, "Hey Jen, we're just going to take a, a quick little detour." up to Teton Pass and, and we, we slept in the car that night. I was so jet lagged. We got up in the morning and 
and uh, Steve's like, grab your gear, and we boot packed up this mountain, right? And it was one of the hardest things I'd done. It was at high altitude, mm -hmm. jet lagged, coming from Australia, um, for somebody who hadn't really done a lot of mountain boot packing um, as yet. So that definitely opened my eyes to what I needed to do if I wanted to keep up with this heli, Alaska heli ski guide. I needed to, you know, get my fitness up to hiking mountains. Um, and the ride down was insane. It was powder, and no wonder they put in this effort because that's the reward that you get yeah. is coming back down. Um, but seriously, it nearly killed me. I was hyperventilating at one stage. Yeah, it was it was hard. <laughs> uh, so you've got back to Alaska. And what happened then from there? Yeah, I got I got back to Alaska, back into my RV. Yeah. Um, my budget wasn't as big as those years before with the helicopters, um, but I still had a had a small budget to you know have you know get those core days, those epic days up there. Um, and back then you could sort of wait and just get a spare seat on the day, whereas these days you do need to sort of choose a date and book in, book in advance. So I was very lucky back then. But I also needed to um, start having some of my own activities that I could do outside of the heli skiing. So that was when I decided to get back into skis because then I could put skins on the bottom again and, 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 and skin up. Um, and that's when I, I brought a kite with me and I started going out snow kiting a lot. It was windy a lot. And the snow was fantastic and I could go and play on the flats, right, the frozen lakes or just the flats at the base of the mountain. I wasn't in avalanche terrain, so I wasn't going to get myself into too much trouble because my knowledge, you know, was, was small back then. Um, but I could go out and have a great time in the mountains, fly my kite and, uh, and then, you know, meet Steve at the end of the day and hear how, how their, their day had gone out in the big mountains. So, um, yeah, that next year I, I definitely started doing a lot more of those down day activities. Mm. Um, yeah, sweet. And then? Um, and then, you know, I, I kept going. Um, for, for, for 12 years, my RV survived up in Alaska wow. in storage. Um, it was stored outside, so eventually after 12 years, it, it, it was at the end of its lifetime. So you were going back and forth from back and forth. America to, yeah. uh, sorry, Australia back to Alaska? Yeah, I pretty much go, ended up doing six months in the States, six months in Australia. Oh, six wow. months in the States, six <laughs> months in Australia. So you'd do six months of the winter and then obviously come back for here for the winter, but it wouldn't be as a winter over there. Yeah, at first it was winter, winter, yep. pretty much. It was back to back winters. I'd come and work in, in Threadbow in the mountains here. Um, and then I would go back and, you know, be in Montana in the mountains and Alaska in the mountains. Um, but the, the part I left out was uh, telling you more about when I went to Hawaii to have those kiteboarding lessons. Yes. Because Steve decided to come with me. Wow. So he flew to Hawaii too with his windsurfing gear and for I think it was about three weeks we um, lived in a rental car. We ripped the back seats out and we camped in the back of this rental car in Maui. Again, something that you probably can't do these days. Um, and and I learned to kiteboard um, and it was amazing and Steve would sort of drive downwind and pick me up. So I you know, I couldn't hold my ground yet. Uh, but we, we developed this love of wind sports. And he told me about um, his summers he normally spends on the Oregon coast. 
And since he'd been a kid growing up in Montana, he would travel out to the Oregon coast every summer to go windsurfing in the waves. Hmm. And I went, oh, well, that sounds pretty cool. So I ended up um, changing my sort of seasons a little bit so that after Alaska, we would go down to the Oregon coast um, to where Steve loves to windsurf and I would continue learning to kiteboard on water and I would watch him do incredible tricks and riding big waves and yeah, very impressive, those, those guys down there. Um, and I was sort of thrown in the deep end learning to kiteboard but not in this beautiful flat warm location i was learning on the oregon coast in the big waves cold water mm. um yeah hence why i didn't want to fall in <laughs> yeah um so were you working as well in those 12 years or is it just yeah i would come back to australia and i would work because couldn't work over i there couldn't work in the states the yeah i didn't have the right visas um i did i did have a sort of creative sticker business up in alaska out of my rv i had a, a vinyl decal cutting machine and uh, I would make um, helicopter stickers, right, <laughs> nice. to exchange for helicopter runs, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, but most of the time I would, I would come back to Australia, work my ass off, sometimes three or four jobs um, for that period of time and then um, save up, go back overseas, do it, do it all over again until I ran out of money, come back to Australia. So. All right, so obviously kiteboarding took over. At what point was it, you know, did you go, oh, this is what I want to be doing more than the, like the heli skiing and all that sort of stuff? What changed there? Um, nothing's changed, to be honest with you. I'm still um, very grateful to have balanced my life to find this balance between the ocean and the mountains, this balance between work and play balance between two different countries, two different hemispheres. Um, and that is, that is something that didn't happen by accident. It's something that, you know, both Steve and I have developed over the years um, mm. to figure out how to make a long distance relationship into a, a lasting marriage. Yeah. <laughs> that's impressive. That's, that's really good. So you've competed with kiting a few times. When, when was the first kite competition that you sort of un entered into? Yeah, um, so after the Threadbow season and I was still earning money, I worked um, for a company called Sport Trade. They were the in importers of Vocal, Marker and Dal Bello, um, which are incredible products in the ski industry. Um, and they had a warehouse up on the northern beaches, which was super cool. So after the winters here, I would go and work for them for a couple of months, preparing for trade show. I would help them with their trade show stand in October. I'd then go back and help in their warehouse, unloading containers of ski boots arriving. Um, I was never scared of, you know, physical days work. I loved working in the warehouse. I loved dealing with customers on the phones. I loved dealing with warranties because I like to fix stuff and keep people happy. What year was this? I worked for Sport Trade for about 10 years. So over those 12 years that I was bouncing backwards and forwards, mm -hmm. I would work in the mountains and then I would work for Sport Trade at the end of the season. So our, our spring coming into summer. Yep. And so when I was working for a couple of months up in Sydney during that time, it gave me the chance to kiteboard at Long Reef and Narrabeen. Um, and I got the opportunity to go down to Botany Bay 
um, to, which was some flat water kiting as well on the weekends and things like that. And I remember um, going into this super cool kite store, Kite Power, which had all these amazing kites and all the stuff that I was in love with. Um, and they told me that they were having a race. Um, and I'm a competitive person. Um, and so I organized to get off work early on this Friday. I drove down to Botany Bay and turned up and they were gonna put markers out in the bay and we had to race around So them. it's basically a distance race and yeah, everybody's like, got to go around the same course and get the fastest time. Yeah, pretty much. And you might have to do two or three laps. Yep. Yep. Um, and so everybody, uh, it was a beach start at that race. And so, you know, there's a whole heap of people on the beach with their kite, with their kite in the air, board under one hand, waiting for the gun to go off. And then they run, jump in the water and go. And on my first... They had, did heats, right? They did yep. heats. So in my first heat, I was too scared to stand on the line. I stood way back and I let them all go. And then I went out after, after them and then spent the whole race just trying to overtake a couple of people. Um, but these, I, you know, I wasn't a super advanced kiter back then. I was still in my intermediate days, but absolutely loving it and wanting to improve. Um, and so in my, my first heat, I didn't do very well. And I got back to the beach and Steve goes, you've got to get in the line. You're never going to do well unless you get on the line. And so he kind of pushed me into position onto the line and, and, uh, and that was super scary again. And, and, but then off we go, um, you're seeing this trend of, of the fear thing happening, right? <laughs> but I'm, I'm kind of liking it, um, conquer that fear. And I got out there and raced, um, and it was, su it was super fun and I watched these advanced guys and what they were doing, their tactics for tacking backwards and forwards upwind to, to marks and... Um, and Steve would compete as well? No, no, Steve, Steve's my, my cheerleader. Okay. He's, n he's not big on competing, but he's always supportive of everything that I wanted to do. Yeah. So he, he would sort of, you know, help me out, give me some, some tips when I would get back. Um, and we had a an hour for lunch and instead of eating, I went back out into the water and I tried to figure out all of the, the tacking angles to see if I could figure out a, you know, figure out my route of how I was gonna get my fastest lap. Okay. And I figured out I could go, I could actually tack the opposite direction to the fleet towards the beach and get to the same spot and I thought it might've been quicker and I sort of tested it out in my lunch break. Then we had some more more heats, and uh, and we went out again. And sure enough, I tried this way. I went totally the opposite direction to the whole fleet. There's like ten people heading this way, and I head this way all by myself. And I head towards the beach, and I tack super close in the shallows and head back. You know what? I was in front. Oh wow! Uh huh. So yeah. <laughs> It was it was amazing and I tacked around the mark and I could hear these guys behind me going, no way, she freaking did it. And I'm like in front of all these guys and now they're catching me because they're, they're way faster. I'd made a good tactical move and I remember heading towards the beach to the finish line just wanting to win and I, I got to the the beach and you're supposed to sort of take your board off and then run up over the finish line, which was the same as the start line on the beach. And I came up and I didn't, I didn't slow down enough and, uh, and I couldn't really get my feet out of my bindings oh, no. and I hit the beach and I got, I dragged myself 
over the finish line <laughs> in front of you know uh, in front of Rich Stenning who who is like an absolute legend in the kiteboarding world and he came in just behind me and he went you know I remember him shaking my hand and going man Jen that was impressive <laughs> Uh -huh. And so that was when I, I first got a taste of, of, you know, tactics and, you know, the feeling of getting to, to win something. Um, yeah, it was, it was super fun. So what, so what was next after that? Um, so next after that, my parents moved to a super cool place called Milton down <laughs> on the south coast. And uh, Steve and I came down to visit them and with our kites. And um, uh, Steve had actually switched from windsurfer to kiting by this stage. He, he was windsurfing on the Oregon coast, but when he decided to travel to Australia, it's too hard to travel with all your big windsurfing gear. So just, can you explain the difference? Uh, windsurfing, you use a board and it has a, a mast attached with the base and it has a, a sail. You choose the size of the sail and then it has a, a boom that you tie on and you stand on this board with the sail and you can pump the sail, you can hold the sail, pull it in. Um, whereas kite surfing, we're using, uh, when you're learning, you're using a twin tip board, which looks like a wakeboard with straps on it. And then you're using a kite that you pump up, right? Like a, an inflatable mattress, you pump it up, you seal it off so that if it crashes on the water, it floats. And then you've got the opportunity to water relaunch. Um, and that kite is on lines that are about 20, 25 meters long. So the kite is a long way away from you, whereas on a windsurfer, the, the sail is right in front of you. And they, obviously the kite gives you more power because it's up in the wind a lot more. Yeah, we use bigger kites than, um, the, than windsurfing sails. Mm. Um, normally if somebody's on a 4.7, 4.7 um, meter windsurfing sail, that to me means I'll probably be on a seven meter kite. Mm. Right, so it's, it can be, you know, nearly double the, the, the you know, sail area, meter squared area of fabric. Um, also, being on long lines like that gives us two things. One, we can depower the kite really, really well, so we can spill all of the wind. So it's not just constantly pulling us. We can control, turn the power on, turn the power off, right? Uh, but the, the great thing about having those long lines is that we can swing the kite around which means we can create apparent wind. And apparent wind is wind we can create by movement, right? It's like we could go outside and there's absolutely no wind, but if we jump in a car and we, we drive it 20 Ks, yeah. you stick your hand out the window, you're gonna feel 20 Ks of wind. So it's a similar scenario, we whip that kite around and so we can go out in lighter winds than windsurfers. Mm. Um, and we can also go out in super strong winds as well by um, using a smaller kite, right? Or even using shorter lines, mm. things like that. Cool. So you've moved, uh, sorry, your parents moved to Milton. Yep. And then you've come down. And we discovered epic kite surfing spots down here on the south coast. Yeah, I mean, they have some great waves down here for surfing um, and they have some, some good winds too. You know, we'll get those northeasterly sort of summer winds coming coming through. Um, my favorite are those southerly busters, the strong southerlies that come in um, with the storm and hopefully a south swell. And um, um, we decided that we would base ourselves around here so that when I was in Australia, I could spend time with my family. 
Um, and so we bought a cabin down in, in Aladala. Nice. Down there. And what year was that? Oh, must be about eight, eight, nine years ago now. Cool. So basically for the last eight to nine years, you've been coming from Ulladulla, South Coast area, back to Alaska and splitting those two up for six months on, six months off. Yeah, pretty pretty much. But I still go down to Threadbow and work. Um, yeah. I ended up, um, you know, uh, working as a backcountry guide for K7 Adventures and um, and running my snow kiting school out of there. So not only taking people in the backcountry to get some epic runs, but taking them into the backcountry to learn how to fly kites on snow as well. So let's dive into that a little bit. Kite boarding schools. Snow kiting. Snow snow snow, snow kiting, kiting schools. Schools. Yeah. How did that come about? That came about when Steve and I were uh, snow kiting up in Alaska on the down days, people seeing us doing it and going, oh, that looks kind of fun. And the heli ski operations um, employing us to teach their clients as a down day activity, um, which I actually quite enjoyed. It got back to my, my teaching roots from being a ski instructor and teaching people how to do something. Um, I, I loved sharing my passion for, for my sport with others and seeing them get some, some joy out of it. And um, I discovered that it was a pretty quick learning curve to learn to snow kite. If you're already a good skier or a snowboarder, I could teach you to fly a kite and within a couple of hours, you'll be getting your first rides being towed around wow. on the first day. Whereas learning to kiteboard on water and I, I did go on and get all my qualifications to, to be a certified, you know, kiteboarding instructor as well. Um, that's a longer process, you know, that's a definitely a three, four or five lessons before you're starting to be able to come back to the beach, getting your first rides and coming back. What do you think the difference is? The difference is on water, you are sinking. Mm. Okay, you've got to pull yourself out of the water from one surface to another. And most people are learning how to ride the board on the water and learning to fly the kite at the same time. So you're learning two separate things yep. and you're having to put them together. Um, my advice, and this is what I did, was I was sort of struggling in my first few lessons. I was, you know, getting a few little rides, but definitely not, it wasn't all coming together as I'd hoped until I went wakeboarding yeah, and okay. practiced just my board skills behind a boat and figuring out how to turn and being comfortable on the board. Then when I went back and tried with the kite, it all came together because I'd separated the two. Mm, yeah, it, I'm, even for myself, learning how to surf took years to get good anyway. And then going onto the snow, you could almost pick it up in a day, snowboarding. And I think it's like you said, you just haven't got that resistance of the water and just yeah, yeah. working against the water yep. where the snow, you can, it's just set you just sort of ride down a mountain type thing. That's right, and everybody who comes to learn how to snow kite already knows how to ski or snowboard. Yeah. They've had lessons in the resort, they've been riding in resort, and they're ready for, for that next step. So, yeah. um, you know, I don't normally need to do too much teaching of their ski or snowboard skills. Um, I can just teach them the kite skills and how to, you know, uh, mix the two two sports together, um, which is which is fantastic. Um, plus there's no sharks, you know. That <laughs> in the water, there's always that extra fear, right? <laughs> um, so when did you start doing this? What year was that, the snow school? Uh, um, the snow 
kite school. Yeah, snow kiting up in Alaska started started back in you know I'm going to guess 2005, oh, six. Wow. Okay. You know, long long time ago. I've been yeah. I've been snow kiting for about 18, 19 years. Awesome. Now, um, and then I would come back to Australia and you know work on my backcountry skills, start backcountry guiding, started teaching some friends how to snow kite here and then more and more people wanted to learn i'd go back back to the states and um, i got to travel around the north american um, snow kite tour they had a tour and i got an invitation to attend that and so for a month i traveled around to nearly every snow kite location in north america um, with the best snow kiters in north america and again that was just such an amazing opportunity for me to learn from some of the best um, snow kiters out wow. there and and travel around to all these different locations really um, making me aware of the types of locations that are going to work for snow kiting and the amazing crew of snow kiters that are out there in the world that you may not have even known about you know everywhere mm. we went we met people that were just as keen as I was and we were all stoked to get together and and talk talk snow kiting and then on the weekends we would um, we would actually invite other people to come and try it. So we were sort of competing um, and filming for the sport. And then we we're also, you know, using, um, having all of our snow kiters together to teach others. And so I was always teaching the women, the women would come into me. And I, you know, that's where I started my love of sort of women's snow kite camps and women's clinics and getting a bunch of women together. Um. So when you said you were going around competing as well, was that just, again, distance or? Yeah. Because you can do a lot of tricks and all that sort of stuff on the kites as well. Is there comps for, I guess, style comps? Like... They do have freestyle comps and they're big over in Europe. So okay. yeah, you can compete in the world champs for snow kite freestyle. Um, and then we have course racing. You know, people, um, like I was talking about before, when I was on the course on the water, we do the same thing on snow, having markers that you go round. And they can either be on frozen lakes or they can be in mountainous terrain where you can't even see the markers. And that's where you really have to have some good navigation skills as well. Um, they also have um, people compete in long distance races from A to B, and it might be a five or five day or even a month long, and they have to camp out every night. And so they'll yeah. be snow kiting with uh, a sled behind them with their camping gear and all their food needed. So um, there's multiple sort of you know options for competing in the sport. Probably the, the biggest race in the world is the Red Bull Ragnarok. Yeah. race which is um is an incredible endurance event it's a five hour race five laps in five hours and the laps were um you know about 30k 25 to 30k each and that was one of the ones where you're in mountainous terrain so you can't see the markers and whereabouts was this this was in norway yeah, up on the up on the plains and top of Norway. And what year? Um, I got to compete in 2019, um, although those races have been been going for probably 10 years before that, and it was one of the, it was on my dream list for for a long time. So how did you get into that? I made the commitment that I wanted to go and compete in in the Red Bull Ragnarok. Is it an invitation, or do you have to apply? 
No, you can, anyone can go. And in fact, they have um, some years got 400 competitors yeah. on the start line. So, so when you were telling me about this originally when we were training, I ended up YouTubing it and looking at it. Um, so for anybody listening, I'd recommend going and actually watching a couple of clips on this because Jen's going to explain exactly, but until you actually see what's going on, it's, it's actually mind-blowing. It's, yeah, I told you about that first race where I was scared to get on the line with 10 kites. Mm. Well, there's 400 kites in yeah. the sky on a start line. It is crazy. Um, it's very entertaining watching it on YouTube. The, just the, it just looks like a massacre has just occurred. Yeah. There's kites, there's people everywhere. In 2019, I had a huge competitive vibe going. Um, I'd, I'd had an injury a few years beforehand, um, not from kiting, just from, you know, just body issues. Um, and I'd had surgery and I set myself a goal of getting back to a competitive level of kite surfing and snow kiting. And so in 2019, that all came together because I got to compete in the Australian Kite Surfing uh, Wave Championship down in Torquay. And that was a distance one again? Um, no, that was actually wave riding. That was that was a wave riding. So like your typical event. surfing comp. Type. Yep. Yeah, sweet. Then. Yeah, yeah. You get judged for you know your wave selection, your your speed, your power. You know how we, your top critical turn. Yeah. And then be a few judges and then give you a score out of ten. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So I'd I'd started doing a little bit of competing in that, and then in 2019 I got to do the the wave championships, um, and then got a wild card into the GKA, which is um, another uh, kite surfing wave world championships which was amazing and then where was that uh, that was also in torquay yeah. here in australia and and then i also got to go to the red bull ragnarok which was my dream so so that year i was just on a mission to compete in some big events wow yeah um so the first one how did you do how did you go I won. I'm so proud at the age of 48, after spinal surgery, I, I became the Australian women's kite surfing champion. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Very proud of myself. Um, and then that led you into the next one? Yeah, that led me into the GKA. So the top four women, um, you know, from, in, from Australia got a wildcard entry into the world championships, which was two weeks later. And I got to compete again. Um, against you know my Aussie girlfriends and uh, some of the best kite surfers in the world. Wow! Which was which was incredible. <laughs> what had you uh, had you done uh, one of those comps before before the the Australian Championship? I I hadn't. I'd competed in the um, the uh, Marimbula Classic, which is uh, the longest wave riding event in the world. Um, which is held down in Marimbula every year. I'd competed in that for multiple years um, and, and sort of improved my, my rankings there. And I'd won a couple of times. I'd competed in the New South Wales Kite Surfing Championships. Same style, like you ride the, the waves. waves. Yep. Yep, yep. So, so on water, I ended up, you know, falling in love with the waves because I was hanging out in Oregon with my husband in the big waves. So mm. I got good at it. <laughs> and then, um, and then, uh, after that, you know, I, I really wanted to, to compete in the snow, right? I was on a bit of a, a run. I got first in Australia. I ended up coming fourth in the, in the world in the world in that particular race, you know. Wow. Yeah. Let, let's just hang there for a second. <laughs> so what was it like 
going for the Australian Championship, was there nerves? Did you, were you like, I've got this? I've, like, you know? I had no idea how I was going to go. Um, you know, my style is very, very different. I didn't grow up surfing. Yeah. Um, and the girls that I was competing against are all just beautiful surfers, mm. you know, and they, they, they have those surfing skills and style that I definitely knew I, I did not have. Um, I rode the waves more like a snowboarder. To yeah, be okay. honest with you, I felt like I was snowboarding the waves um, rather than surfing the waves at first. Um, and that made my style stand out. So mm. I looked a little bit different. The other thing which, um, you know, uh, snowboarding in those big mountains in Alaska taught me was I'm not scared of being on a big wave and dropping in on the steeps. It's exactly the same same thing. Give me a big steep wave and it feels like a big steep mountain. Um, so I think having that... Um, not or maybe not having that fear mm. of being on the steep critical section um, was to my advantage. Um, I was very fast because I ski and snowboard, uh, you know, I'm very fast on the wave, which again, you got extra points for speed. Um, but I had no idea how I was how I was going to go. Describe the surf force on the day. So was it just a day comp? Um, so no, we, ha we had um, heats and you know the men were running and so we'd have women's heats and we'd compete and then um, whoever won you know mm. that particular heat goes on to the, the net semifinals and to the finals. And so it was over a couple of days. Um, the wind didn't suit me that well. It was very light winds um, and I was one of the heavier, heavier girls. Um, I was probably on too small a surfboard, like I was too small a snowboard on that <laughs> first mountain. Um, and I could have done better on a, a bigger, more buoyant board maybe. Um, and the waves were quite small, so I really wasn't able okay. to showcase um, my, my big wave skills. So um, I just went out there and went for it. Yeah, nice. Yeah, and just did, did the best that I could, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's unreal. Uh, so for the world championships, what was the surf like? Similar or? Uh, the, the men scored incredible waves. Um, yeah, for the men's heat. And it's all just a bit of a gamble of when that swell's going to hit and, um, um, and stuff. The women, we didn't get as, as good a swell. Again, it was a little on the small side. The wind was a little on the light side. Um, and some of those girls that I was competing against are like ballerinas. Mm. They're, you know, they can lightweight tippy toes around spinning their boards you know um so i again i just went out there and, and said okay jen just just do your thing it's your style just do your thing see how you go <laughs> and you come forth in the world <laughs> yeah the cool thing was that i was actually the oldest person competing in the in the event out of all the men all the women i was the oldest and they at uh, what age uh 48 Wow. And they gave me the Rookie Award, <laughs> <laughs> which I was, yeah, very, very stoked about. Oh, God. That's, that in itself is very impressive. Well Thank done. Thank you. Um, so from there to Ragnarok. Yeah, so I was on a, on a bit of a, a, a winning streak mm. and, uh, and super, super pumped to, to do the Ragnarok. Um, that, that was something that... It was an endurance event. So it was something I hadn't done a, a big endurance event like that before. I knew I needed to mentally and physically prepare for it. Yep. So I wanted to get super, super strong. I started actually, um, you know, I did as much snow karting as I could in the winter, but then I started actually skiing on the beaches here on the, 
on the south coast, I'd put my old skis and boots on and fly my kite and actually sand kiting. On skis? On skis. Okay, wow. Yeah, yeah. yeah I suppose you got to work with what you got. So, so yeah, yeah, kind of like the cool running guys, yeah. you know, the Jamaican bobsled team, you know. Okay, this is Jen, the Aussie snow kiter. And I went out there um, with my skis and my kite and it was the most incredible workout I'd ever done. The amount of pressure on my legs and my quads was incredible. I could imagine. I, I very rarely get leg burn when I'm when I'm on the mountain mm. because my body's just used to it. But this was pushing it to a whole nother level, which is what I felt was a good thing to do. Plus it was super fun. So in what month did you start training? Um, I had started thinking about the Ragnarok, you know, over 12 months beforehand. Okay. Yeah. So you started training at least 12 months before? Yeah, yeah, for And sure. what month is the race in, in Norway? It's it's in March. So pretty much the Aussie summer beforehand, you were training on the beach doing this. Yeah. Building up. Yeah. Okay, so what was yeah. the next 12 months like le leading up to the race? Um, again, just as much kiting as I could, as much fitness as I could, um, and also starting to plan a, a mental strategy. I'd spoken to some of my friends who had done the, the Ragnarok before and said to them, okay, you know, tell me about it. What's the hardest thing? And, and they said just the mental um, exhaustion uh, most people only compete one lap out of the five. Wow. Yeah, so out of those 400 competitors, you know, maybe, you know, half the field might only do one lap, right? About 80 people get tangled on the start line, <laughs> right? Okay. Um, and after completing one lap, having the mental strength to keep going and to achieve that second lap and that third lap. Um, so I actually started working with a coach, James, um, here on the South Coast, who I was so lucky. It kind of, um, you know, just like came into my world at exactly the right time. And I told him about this race and he came back with um, a mental strategy for me to help me mentally get through that race. Only I could do the physical side. And what, was, what did that look like? Um, so it was incredible. He, he said, okay, Jen, you've got five laps, five hours. Let's choose five people. And I want you to do a lap for each of the five people. And I want you to think about that person during the lap and, and the reason why you've chosen that person for each lap. Um, so I chose my dad for my first lap because my dad had, had passed away. Um, and my dad had taught me to ski. He taught me to sail. He sort of set me up for this life that I was doing. And I decided that I needed dad's help to help navigate around that first lap, right? Um, because you don't know the course until the morning of the race. So you wake up at 6 a.m. and you go to the briefing and you eat breakfast and they show you the course on a big map. And you need to take a picture with your phone, memorize it, put in GPS coordinates if you want to. Um, and then you get to the start line and you have to sort of visualize where you think all the marks are and try and go to them. And you can either follow the fleet, follow your GPS or, or you know, wing it somewhere in between. So and the, the first... <laughs> and what did you do? Um, for the first lap, I could see the first mark and, and the whole field's going that way. Uh, I did take a, a safe um, start position to avoid getting tangled, but it actually ended up being quite a smart 
um, start position two because I ended up downwind of, of the crew and was able to get underneath them. Um, I hadn't predicted uh, the the chaos at the first mark because you've got 400 people trying to funnel through these two flags and so people are sort of banking up waiting in line and I was able to actually duck in underneath on the downwind side down loop my kite and overtake a bunch of people at that first mark I got got lucky um, and then I wasn't in front so I knew I had people you know, advanced people who had done it before, who'd won before. Okay, I can be confident that those guys are probably heading in the right direction to get to that next mark. Um, but the wind died when I got to the valley and I lost some of those guys. Yep. Um, so I ended up having to walk up the hill to where the wind was again, launch my kite, get through that second mark, and then had to figure out thirds and fourth and back to the finish line on that fifth mark. And so I thought a lot about my dad and all the sailing that we'd done as kids and how he taught me to navigate out at sea with a sextant and, and how he'd, he'd shown me how to use maps and that sort of thing. Um, on the second lap, the wind got really light. Um, and I'd already planned to have Laura, Laura Green, um, for my second lap. And she's my uh, amazing girlfriend that I had spent the most time with on the Oregon coast. Um, she was a windsurfer, a kiter. Um, she was also head of avalanche control at, at Mount Hood. So we had a, a love of mountains and weather. And, and she was actually, um, she had, had confided in me as telling me that she was the secret forecaster for i kite surf which is a big big you know forecasting thing but um she used a fake name on it because she didn't want to be down at the beach and having people you know getting mad at her if she got the forecast wrong right <laughs> which can which can happen although she was very very good at her job and she taught me a lot about forecasting and and wind and weather and so i'd chosen laura for the second lap and um, when the wind died i i looked up into the sky unfortunately i'd i'd lost laura um, only about six months beforehand, um, she died in a, in a windsurfing accident in Hood River. Um, so it was pretty special for me to have Laura on this journey with me and she was, she was there. Uh, as soon as I sort of looked up into the sky and said, come on, Laura, where's your forecast? Give me some wind. The wind picked up and Laura and I had a great time on lap two. Uh, lap two, I was still figuring out the best tacking angles to get to the marks, you know, what was going to be faster. Um, and I improved on, on my navigation on that second lap. Um, and then it got to lap number three. Now, lap number three was going to be my fastest lap because I still had energy. I was, you know, about halfway through and I should have known my navigation by now. And so lap number three I did for my brother. My brother's Michael Milton. He's Australia's uh, fastest skier. Right, he holds the world speed skiing record for a person with a disability on one leg. And he also holds the Australian speed skiing record against all the two-legged guys as well. So my brother is super badass fast. And I remember starting my third lap and going, okay, Michael, this one's for you. Boy, I hope those fast genes run in my side of the Milton family too. <laughs> you know? And off I went. And uh, lap number three ended up being my fastest lap wow. of the race. And it ended up being the fastest female lap of the whole race. So very proud, proud of that. Yeah. Um, then it got to lap number four. Now, lap number four, it started getting really, really hard, um, both physically um, and mentally. It mm. started getting hard. Let's, so physically, why? 
Um, because I had already been going for, for nearly, you know, three and a half hours full on. Lap number three, I had given it my all to get that fastest time. So I, I'd, I'd used, you know, excess energy to do that. Um, I had also bitten the valve off my camelback and the water had leaked out, leaving me with nothing to drink. On, that was on lap three? Um, that was on, no, that was at the start of lap four. Oh, uh -huh. okay. So I had, and unfortunately, the water had leaked down inside my jacket, down my pant leg into my ski boot. So I remember going, squelch. Every time I put weight on my left foot, it was squelch. Oh my God, I'm thirsty, squelch. Oh my water's in my ski boot. Oh my God, I'm so thirsty, you know. So um, I had food in my pocket to eat, um, but the food that I'd chosen was very, you know, powerful peanut butter sort of balls, which you need water with. You need water with. And so I started eating these things and they were just like, I was just getting this pasty mouth syndrome, like, nothing I'd ever experienced and I had to spit out the food. I couldn't actually swallow it. So so physically I was getting exhausted. I wasn't doing well with my eating or my drinking. Mm. Um, and lap number four, I'd made the decision um, not to actually uh, do it for one person, but I decided to do it for people with depression. I'd met um, a mother um, only you know, weeks earlier um, at a bar at a ski resort and we'd been having a conversation and I told her about my race and I said how are you going you know what 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 are you experiencing you know at the moment and she told me that her son had just committed suicide the week before mm. and he'd suffered from depression now to hear that mother tell me about that was very very powerful and I decided to to do lap number four for people with depression because I knew that when it was getting hard for me, it was way harder for somebody to survive with depression. And the pain that I was starting to feel in my legs and my body was nothing in comparison to the pain that a mother would feel losing her son. Mm. Um, so it sort of brought what I was doing back into reality. <laughs> it really wasn't that bad, Jen, right? People are doing it tough out there um, and I was doing it tough that day too but um you know i i gave a lot of thought to to everybody i've known who's had depression and to the people that have survived and to the people who didn't um, and that got me through lap four at the end of lap four when you go through the start finish line they hand you drinks all i wanted was some water but guess what they give you at a red bull event <laughs> red bull um, which was kind of a funny funny scenario because um my coach james who'd set me up with this five lap theory had said to me on lap number five jenny i want you to have a red bull I'm like james what are you talking about i'm a health fanatic i don't do caffeine i don't do sugar and you're always preaching to me to eat organic and do this and do that um why are you telling me to have a red bull and he said he said you'll need it was all he said and i said no 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 i'm not going to do that i fought it and so uh james <laughs> somehow managed to make me run out of water and all that was there was a red bull and so i, I grabbed that red bull and, and put it in my mouth and it was wonderful to have a wet sensation in there um, it wasn't my favorite, but I, I, I sculled as much of that Red Bull as I could while I'm flying my kite with one hand and trying to drink with the other. And I'd started lap number five. Now, lap number five 
I was told by James had to be for me. So lap number five was for myself. And, you know, that was a lap to reflect on, you know, how proud I was of myself for everything I'd achieved, how far I'd come. Um, now, at that point in time, no woman over the whole history of the Red Bull Ragnarok had ever completed five laps. What? In fact, no woman had actually completed four laps, I believe. I might be wrong there, but just around that four mark, right? And so I was heading into this fifth lap, and so I already knew that I'd achieved something. Um, I didn't know you know, whether I was in front or not. And to be honest, it wasn't something I was worried about because I was just doing it for me. And that last lap reminded me of that. Um, but on that last lap, it was hard. There'd been a lot of sun, right? By that time in the day, a lot of sun on the snow. So it started getting really sticky. Oh, of course, yeah. And so it was starting to get really slow, a lot more friction on the legs and my legs were already burning. So it was getting really hard at this stage and I couldn't just stop and wax, right? So, so I'm just going and the wind started getting very light and we had a wind directional change. And that was the point where I had to make a decision. I had to change my navigation. And that was the one scenario that I hadn't sort of thought about. I thought, oh, once I've got my navigation, I can stick with it. But we're having a wind change um, changed everything up. Mm. It changed everything up and I, you know, tried to stick with the same route that I'd had success with for those four laps and it, it didn't end up being a very good decision. Um, and I ended up in a, in a valley where there was very little wind, whereas, you know, um, thinking about after the fact I should have stayed up on the ridge. Um, and I remember looking at the watch and I could see the finish line, but I had no wind and I, I'm trying to walk with my skis on my shoulder, dragging my kite in this thick, heavy snow. And I was probably about 10 minutes away from that finish line when the buzzer went off and that was the end of the five hours. Oh. So that that's where I'd achieved. Um, did I feel that, oh, I didn't make it moment? No, I didn't. I was so proud of getting to where I was and I knew that I'd given it absolutely everything. I don't think you've actually painted the picture for people like how difficult this race is. So how long was each lap? Like how many 30 kilometers? 30 kilometers each lap is. Through terrain of? Uh, mountainous terrain. Uh, at one stage I had to like clamber over rocks and uh, up a cliff, you know, to try and I was trying to get a, a, a route that was going to yeah, gain so me it's some not time. Just, it's not just a flat open field. No, no, it's not. It, it, it's rolling mountainous terrain um, and some of the marks were on top of mountains and others were in the valleys and uh, the, when the wind rushes through the mountains, there'll be areas of high wind speed up on the ridges and mountaintops and then there'll be areas where there, there might be total wind holes you want to make sure you don't get stuck in those, which, you know, unfortunately I, I did right at, right at the end there. Mm. Yeah. But um, um, Steph Bridge uh, has won the Red Bull Ragnarok for the female skiers for the last, I think she'd won five years in a row. And that year she completed the five laps. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, uh, and she, she, won, she won that race and very deservingly so. She made a really smart maneuver with her navigation at the end, which got her across the line, you know, I think about 10 minutes before 
the the five hour cutoff. So mm. yeah, very very proud of Steph, and it was so inspiring to 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 watch and to see her in action. Um, so out of the four hundred who started, how many actually finished? That is a good question that I I, I don't know the answer to. Um, in terms of finishing the five laps, I would say somewhere around the twenty. Wow. you know 25 maybe and that and and obviously people don't just enter this this is like the world's best kiters so that just gives you an idea of how hard it like everybody listening gives you an idea of how hard it is actually it it, it was full-on it was so hard in fact um and i did make one more mistake and that was um thinking that at the end of the five hours that was the end of of the effort i needed to put in i forgot that i actually needed energy to get home back back to the back to my bag back to pack up my stuff back to the bus yeah and so I had absolutely nothing when that buzzer went off I just like Mm. okay that's it I'm I'm done Mm. I have nothing left and uh, I remember a snow machine coming around you know with the first aid guy and he came past me and he said I'll come back and get you because I was sort of closer to the line. He was going out to pick up other people who were further away. And I said to him, have you got some water? I need water, right? Really bad, I need water. And he said, I got Coca-Cola. I'm like, oh gosh, really? Oh, I think I ate a little bit of snow, but that doesn't work. You know, it takes more energy to melt the snow than it does to replenish you. So I ended up, you know, waiting for the snowmobile, came and got me and drove me back to my bag and dropped me at my bags. But I had put my bags a long way away from the bus yeah. because I tried to get away from the crowds and launching in the middle of everybody and I'd gone right to the outside. And I, I packed up my gear, I got back to my bag thinking, I've got water in my bag, I've got water in my bag. There was about two sips. I'd drunk it all before I'd, I'd left. Um, I should have planned on having some more there. Um, and I remember just being so exhausted, everything went blurry and I collapsed. I actually fell over. Um, luckily somebody saw me fall over and the next thing I know when I opened my eyes, there was five or six people standing above me going, are you okay, are you okay? And they you know, gave me water. I was just extremely fatigued and dehydrated at that point and they escorted me back to the bus luckily because I didn't have the energy to get there. Wow. Yeah, so I, it was it was full on. Yeah, that's how you know on. you've given everything possible. Yeah. <laughs> there was nothing left in the tank. Wow. Um so that was 2019, obviously COVID hit and you could haven't been able to do it since. Yeah, I was heading back for another go. I ended up coming second behind Steph Bridge in the female ski, so I was very proud. Oh wow, so you were... Yeah, I got a silver medal in the Red Bull Ragnarok. Oh. <laughs> so that was, that was, that was awesome, <laughs> right? And... <laughs> so you've gone from the best, winning the Australian title, yep. coming fourth in the world, yep. and then second at Ragnarok. Yeah. Wow. 
Yeah, what a year. <laughs> yeah. What, wow, that's incredible. What a year. So that that was that was super amazing. Um, and I I definitely had the desire to go back and give it another go, wanting that gold medal. Um, and I'd already called Steph to make sure she was coming because you I wanted you know if I was going to win I wanted to win against the best. Um, but unfortunately. Um, COVID broke out at that moment. My airfares were booked. I was ready to go to Norway, um, but I made the decision not to mm. get stuck yeah, good. in Europe. And, um, and you know, my backup plan was staying in Alaska, mm. which we had an awesome, awesome season there. I could imagine it would have been very quiet in Alaska over COVID. Yeah, when COVID broke out, um, it was the middle of the heli season and... Um, pretty much all, all the heli operators were shut down and clients, you know, evacuated mm. or didn't come. Um, but all of us that were already there, we stayed and we had we had an epic, uh, epic spring with all of the locals and awesome. the crew. So Ragnarok's still on the cards? I would love to. I haven't heard, they haven't, um, you know, announced another one yet. Um, my fingers are crossed mm -hmm. that I'll, I'll get that opportunity again or another another big race will, will pop up. Maybe I'll, if it doesn't, um, I'll go to Europe and, and compete in some of those. Um, although, you know, right now I feel like I'm, you know, I'm sitting on a high and I achieved everything that I wanted wanted to mm. in, in my sort of competitive journey so yeah feel very satisfied yeah and so you should what you've done is crazy but amazing at the same time very impressive thank you thank you um so what's next what's next uh over the the you know the pandemic i uh, focused a lot more on leveling up my snow kite schools running women's camps I started running women's snow kite camps in Idaho and Alaska. I started running, um, you know, private snow kiting camps up in Alaska um, in, and having clients come up and we fly around in, in Cessna planes out to remote, remote ice fields to, to, uh, to snow kite and we ride snow machines up mountains to snow kite and we have incredible snow kiting adventures. Um, I love teaching people who ski and, and snowboard who've never flown kites before, introducing them to the sport and seeing them find the joy in the sport. Um, and then I have a lot of kite boarders and kite surfers who love to ski and snowboard in resort. They come to me and I'll help them put the two together and just you know confirm they know all the safety stuff. There's some extra safety um, when we're snow kiting course, versus yeah. on the water. And, um, um, and I've had a lot of, a lot of joy you know, sharing my knowledge and sharing my skills that, you know, got me to, to a high level you know, of competition. But um, I'm very happy to share everything I know with others as well mm. to get them to enjoy it as much as I do. And that, and for everybody listening, Jen's sort of going out on her like, own and doing all these things online and starting to create some pretty cool projects. One that I'm very pri privileged to be able to um, combined our knowledges together and collaborate on a project, which yeah. I'm very excited for. Uh, that'll be coming out in the next couple of weeks. Um, but before we just dive in a little bit more of that, you've had an amazing life and you've done some amazing things. Like business owner <laughs> dropping in on a huge mountain and again, back to the business as well, but a completely different side of things. Um, what 
advice would you give to somebody that's sort of just, I guess, looking at the world going, what can I do? What's out there? Not sure of what to do, not sure of themselves and all that sort of stuff. Because you come across as, like, just telling the story then, there's a lot of stories that I hadn't heard before. But knowing you before these stories, you come across as very confident, you know yourself, this is what I do. Um, obviously that comes from being very confident on the like snow, water, kiting, all that sort of stuff. So you seem to be a very confident person and confident in your knowledge of the world, which is obviously from all your experiences. How can you take that and give, it, give somebody some advice that I guess, what would you say to yourself in your early 20s knowing what you know now? what I'm getting at there. Well, thank you. Thank you for the compliment of confidence because um, that is something that, you know, may come across as something I, I'm, I just do, but it's actually something I work on. Just like working on, you know, my physical body, working on my health from eating, um, I believe confidence and, and self-confidence, self-esteem is something we need to work on constantly. And there'll be times, um, you know, in all of our lives when we feel like we're standing on top of a mountain, just feeling fantastic, we've achieved something, we've achieved a goal, we've, we've you know, won a race and we'll feel fantastic. Um, but, you know, when you ski to the bottom of that mountain, you're standing at the bottom again, um, you can, you can you know, you feel the opposite, right? Um, and maybe sometimes lacking in, in confidence or, you know, looking up that mountain going, oh, can I climb it up it again? So my advice to everybody is just start climbing. Just take one step, you know, one step at a time. Um, sometimes I'm, I'm guiding people up a mountain. If I tell them that, hey, we're going to the top of that mountain, some of them you know, won't have the, the confidence or, or mental mindset to achieve that. But if I say, hey, let's just make it to that first little rise up there and check out the view and make a decision if we want to go further, we can achieve everything in smaller steps. So if we can break down, um, you know, one big goal into smaller steps and, and celebrate our wins when we achieve every step along the way, not just save that celebration to achieving it at the end, I think it gives us more joy and more confidence to then take that second step and that third step, right? In life, no matter what you're doing, whether it's business, sport. Um, I had a, I had a, a mother and um, son out hiking a mountain with me recently and uh, and little little Johnny, I'll call him little Johnny, said, "How old are you?" And the mother said, "You shouldn't be asking asking a woman how old she is." And I said, "Oh no, no, I, I don't I don't mind." I said, "Little Johnny, how old do you think I am?" And he goes, "Oh, oh, about forty-five. And his mother goes, "Oh, little Johnny, what are you talking about? You know, she only looks about thirty-five. You know, um, you can't say say that." And I said, "I said actually, I'm fifty, and so I'm going to take both of those as a huge compliment." But little Johnny, why do you think I'm forty-five? And he said, "Because you know so much." So sometimes it just comes down to, you know, to gaining all that knowledge over the years and having that knowledge um, and age isn't necessarily just the way we, we look or, or are perceived. So, you know, keep taking those steps to learn. Um, be open to learning. Even if you're good at something, you can always meet somebody else who's also good at it and share knowledge. And therefore, if you've got each other's knowledge, you're both going to, to, to level up. 
right? So um, be open to learning, keep working on your confidence and just, just start climbing that mountain step by step because you'll, you'll get, you might get to the top, you might get to the ridge, but you're going to enjoy the journey along the way if you celebrate. Love it. Couldn't agree more. Um, so just to finish off, where can people find more about you? Social media, website? Where would you like people to go? Yeah, I still got my passion for photography that Randy taught me all those years ago. So please check out, um, you know, some incredible photography for snow kiting and adventure on Adrenogen. Just spell it out for us. It's like Adrenaline Gen, A-D-R-E-N-A-J-E-N. And that's on Facebook and Instagram? Yeah, that's on both Instagram and Facebook. And I've been creating some some cool reels on Instagram so people can can start getting some tips on snow kiting. If you can't get, get to me and to one of my, my schools or my camps, I'm still happy to share knowledge with you online. I'd strongly recommend it. They are great photos. It's, it's quite nice scrolling through and looking at some of the big mountains and the places you've been. Yeah, thank you. That's great. All right, I think we'll leave it there. Thanks again. Um, we've been going for a long time, so thanks a lot for your time. Um, Thank you. And yeah, I've that... enjoyed this whole chat and I'm sure everybody listening will as well. Thanks so much, Jack. Yeah, I've enjoyed working with you both in the gym and, uh, and working on our collaboration, which I'm excited to share with people soon. So thanks so much for having me on your no, podcast. No too. worries at all. Thanks yeah. again. <laughs> Obviously, if you've made it to the end, you've loved that episode. So I want you to do Jen and I a favor by sharing this episode on your social media. Generally, podcasts grow from word of mouth. So by sharing it on your social media, it will help Jen and I get this podcast out to more and more people so they can hear Jen's story as well. Obviously, you were inspired by it and you've enjoyed it. So make sure you share the love, share it on your social media, or just share it with a few friends that you think will get something out of this episode as well. Thank you in advance and I'm sending you all the love. See you in the next episode.